What if it rained food? What if Earth was a cube? What if we had nine lives? What if bits could fly? It's absurd. If money grew on trees, if we didn't have knees, if we walked through life slightly magnetical, it's absurd. Absurd hypotheticals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Absurd Hypotheticals, the show we overthink dumb questions so you don't have to. I'm your host, Marcus Lehner, and I'm joined here today by Chris Yee and Ben Storms. Say hi, guys. Hey, I'm Chris. Hey, I'm Ben. Hey, guys, our question today has actually been upgraded from a lightning round, which, based on the question, I was actually quite surprised. But once <laughs> we were doing the lightning round, we were very, not the episode 100 lightning round. This one was, uh... It was two I lightning rounds. I think 90. it was episode 90, yeah. Yeah, episode 90. But we had some interesting conversations and we wanted to explore a bit further. So, without further ado, Chris... What if it was always overcast? Yes, what if it was always overcast? So I wanted to look, because when I heard this question, I wanted to, my, my mind immediately went to sundials and like keeping time with sundials. So I wanted to focus sort of on time and how we keep time and the history of keeping time. And like, would it develop the same way that it, it did if we didn't, if we couldn't see the sun and stuff? So going back... The oldest known sundial is from 1500 BC in ancient Egypt. And a sundial is known as, it's like a, it's known as a shadow clock. There are different types of shadow clocks. So why would you ever change the name from shadow clock to anything else? Shadow (laughs) clock is the coolest goddamn name I've ever heard. Shadow clock is like the more overall term for it. And then a sundial is a type of shadow clock. Shadow clock is like, the Marvel villain I didn't know I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> what would his power be? Makes it pl- doesn't matter. Dark. He's gonna be <laughs> he's gonna be dressed up all in black. And he's gonna be super smart and super badass, and he's gonna get at least three movies. He's gonna have a large clock on his chest. <laughs> he's gonna have a sundial on his chest. Pretty much it. <laughs> he just he he's, he's the inspiration was someone put a shark suit on backwards and the face has a shadow. <laughs> And they're like, oh, we can tell time with that, too. <laughs> and another type of shadow clock, also in ancient Egypt, is our obelisks. So they built, like, large, like, elongated structures upward, and they use the shadow for that of that to tell time. And those date back as early as 3500 BC. Now, obviously, if it's overcast and you, there's really no directional sun, then sundials and shadow clocks are kind of useless. But they did have some alternative methods in ancient Egypt that they used for that case because they still needed to tell time at night and when it was cloudy because even though it's not overcast all the time, it still was sometimes overcast. So other methods that they used were, um, or one, one of the main methods that they used was water clocks. So basically just like a vessel that's holding water and that have some sort of way for the water to flow out and then they can... They know how fast that the water flows out, and they can see how much has flowed out. But how do you know when to fill the water clock? (laughs) (laughs) So it was more of like a stopwatch sort of thing, I guess. So like you can, or I guess like an alarm clock, you can set it for a certain amount of time, and then it runs out. Yeah, no, it's, it's still useful. I'm like, but what if you just go back to your check your water clock and it's empty? You don't know what time it is anymore. Yeah. Um. And a whole bunch of other civilizations adopted the water clock as well. Um, and Plato actually invented an alarm water clock. So, like, the idea was, I 
I guess he had lead balls and the <laughs> sorry well yeah. known fact about Plato. <laughs> He, he, yeah. <laughs> He's got a stiff upper lip and lead balls. And water would flow into some sort of vessel thing and it would make the balls float up. And eventually it, it would like overflow and the balls would like fall into a different thing and it would like clang and that would make like, that would wake people up. There was another version of this where the water flow forced air through a whistle and that was another version of the alarm clock. And as history advanced, water clocks became more elaborate and there's actually a modern version of the water clock or relatively modern um, it was invented in 1979 and it's called the bernard gittin time flow clock it's actually pretty cool i i, I saw a picture of it and there's like all these siphons and vessels and like weird shapes but then there's like time markers on the side and you can tell exactly what time it is based on that it was pretty cool so that's that's the water clock. That, that was pretty. That was one method that they used. They also had um, candle clocks. The same idea. They know how fast that the candle burns down, and they can measure that. Incense clocks. Also, same idea. Man, the superhero names are getting further and further off the mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can't. No one's gonna want to read about candle clock. <laughs> or definitely not incense clock. <laughs> yeah. And there are hourglasses. So hourglasses is based the same idea as a water clock, but just sand instead of water but yeah those are some different methods and then eventually we got to geared clocks so the first the first geared clock was invented in the 11th century by an arab engineer i'm gonna butcher this name but it was ibn caliph al-maradi and his geared clock used mechanisms of water clocks in combination with like a gear system and that was the first geared clock and then eventually we got to mechanical clocks that were wound. So they need to like wind them about twice a day. And they were built by European Catholic monks, mainly because they required accurate timekeeping in order to adhere to their strict prayer and work schedules. So those are mechanical clocks. So over time, clocks became more and more precise. And eventually we got to atomic clocks. The best kind of clock. Back <laughs> on the superhero name train right here. I'm just waiting for you for to say words followed by clock and decide if they're good superheroes. That's all I'm doing now. <laughs> I think Atomic Clock would be a hero rather than a villain, though. Shadow Clock is a villain. Atomic Clock could be a villain. It could be. I'm going to say it's a hero. <laughs> Chris, like, this is my IP. Back off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the Atomic Clock actually standardized the length of a second because prior to the Atomic Clock, all measurements of time were based on the length of day, and the length of the day varies depending on what time of year it is. So we didn't really have a definitive like unit of measurement for time. But with the atomic clock, we were able to define it, and the official definition of a second is the duration of 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom at temperatures of zero Kelvin. So, gosh, if, if you ever <laughs> wanted to know what, why it's a, why why we have the second, that's that's why <laughs> because it's ninety. Math of those. Yeah. <laughs> but this is basically, it turned the second into not variable anymore. It made it constant. So, and that's basically brought us to the point where we are now. We still use that as the definition of the second. Now, 
if it was always overcast, obviously we can't see the sun and we wouldn't have sundials anymore. But pretty much everything else that I said has nothing to do with the sun at all. <laughs> so, I mean, we wouldn't have sundials, but we'd still be able to keep time. And I think you would still develop the same pretty much. But next I want to look at why, like, would we still divide it into 24 hours in a day? And to look at that, I had to figure out why we do that in the first place. Again, that dates back to the ancient Egyptians. So they counted on a base 12 system as opposed to our base 10 system. So we have base 10 probably because we have 10 fingers. It's easy to count on our 10 fingers. But people think that they counted on a base 12 system because they counted their knuckles excluding their thumbs because they counted their knuckles using their thumb. So you have four fingers other than your thumb and each finger has three knuckles on it. So they count out a base 12 system and they divided their day into 12 parts and their night into 12 parts. So they divide it into to 24 divisions. So that's sort of where the 24 hours stems from. Why do we have minutes and seconds? Because those are based on a different system. They're based on a, a base 60 system. So that, that dates back to the ancient Sumerians, and they used a base 60 number system. We don't really know why exactly they did that. There are a few theories, but we, we're not really sure. I mean, here in, here in America with our imperial units, we can't really talk shit about this <laughs> base 60 system. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the theories is that it's pretty easy, like it's divisible by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So it makes it easily divisible by things. Um, that's just one theory. But they came up with like the 360 degrees in a circle and they use that largely for navigation, but that also translated into eventually into time. So that became the minute and the second. So we've covered hours, minutes and seconds, days, I guess. Days is pretty easy to understand. It's just when the sun goes up and when the sun goes down. Yeah, even if it's overcast, you can still tell when it's daytime. Yeah, you can still tell that it's bright and dark. But like the 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 minutes and the seconds don't really change. They're not affected by the the overcast thing. So next, I wanted to look at months and years because we've, we've looked at everything else. So the early tracking of years dates back to prehistoric uh, structures called megaliths, or basically just like stone structures from the Stone Age. Stonehenge is an example of megalith, but it's uh, th that's like a more modern version, relatively. Megaliths date back to as early as the Neolithic period, so that's like the end of the Stone Age, about twelve thousand years ago, and they they used the they were used to track the solar year, so based on the sun. Now the oldest calendar was from the Mesolithic period, uh, about ten thousand years ago, and that tracked the lunar calendar. So the idea of the month was developed also again by the ancient Sumerians, and they used a lunar month. They based it on every time that they saw a new moon, they started a new month. So that was like sort of one system. The Persians were one of the first to use like a solar calendar. So there are lots of variations of different types of calendars, but they all pretty much rely on the sun and the moon. Now, in our overcast situation, obviously, we can't see the sun and the moon. So we don't have those patterns, but we still do have patterns. So we, even though it's overcast, we can still, what was that? Sorry, that was a conk outside my yeah, window. Passing clown, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna get murdered tonight, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm here right now. I'm here. 
and having a great time with my buds. That's like such a clear honk. Clock it back. Clock and Rose talking shit. That's Shadow Clock coming to get you. <laughs> Shadow Clock's coming to <laughs> Shadow Clock and his band of clowns is coming to get me. Um what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> so there were patterns that are not the oh, sun yeah. and the moon. So we we still have patterns that aren't the sun and the moon. Um, mainly climate. So obviously it gets colder during the winter and still get and it gets hotter during the summer. And and like the length of the, the days would would also get shorter and longer, and we'd notice that. So I think we'd still recognize these patterns and we would develop months based on these patterns. I th- I don't know if they would follow the same conventions or not i think they would be mainly based on farming seasons that makes the most sense to me but i do think because historically calendars have focused on a 12 or 13 month system and i think we might mirror the the 12 based time system that the egyptians were using because we use that already for hours so i think we'd still have 12 months even though we can't see the lunar cycles i think that would still stay the same for the most part but what about our our like our numbers system for the years? So the numbering system for our years is based on Christianity. So BC stands for before Christ, AD stands for Anno Domini. Domini? I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's Latin for in the year of the Lord. So like everything at BC is like one and then on. So we're twenty right now. We're twenty twenty BC, or uh, not BC AD, <laughs> <laughs> but. Again, that has nothing to do with the sun and the moon. So obviously, the numbering would pretty much stay the same. I thought you were gearing up to say, you know, if it was overcast, we wouldn't have had Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to make that bold claim. (laughs) Because you see, in the scripture, it says, when the sun rises for the third, and it wouldn't because it's overcast. (laughs) I mean, maybe, I don't know. (laughs) So you probably noticed a pattern with all this stuff. Um, even though it's overcast and some stuff does rely on uh, the sun and the moon, we have other ways to do it. And a lot of it is do- like doesn't rely on the sun and the moon at all. So one of the big differences, we wouldn't have sundials, but that really doesn't matter in the large scheme of things. And it might take longer for us to develop time or it might, it might actually be faster because we don't have the ambiguity of what system you have to use. Like some people were using the sun, some people are using the moon. We don't have that problem anymore. Everyone's just using the same thing. They're probably just going to be using the same light, dark cycle of day, night and the hot, cold cycle of winter, summer. So our divisions will probably end up the same because we're using the same number systems and we have the same cycles and it'll still be for us, July 2nd, 2020. The year of Shadow Clock and the Clowns. Well, I'm going to point out that, like, right now, for us, it's July 2nd, year 2020. Yeah, for you, for other people, it's it's July 27th, 2020. <laughs> or other or days. when they're listening to it. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. It could be July, it could be July 2nd, 2021. Uh, could be. How's it going, 2021? Better than 2020? Gotta be. I Gotta really be. hope so. Yeah, we, we can only really, really hope it's better. <laughs> But that's that's basically my conclusion. Nothing would change at all. So we're good with time. Ben, what did you look at? So I looked at navigation because I kind of, you know, went down the same same road as Chris where, you know, I realized that a lot of navigation, particularly early navigation, relies very heavily on being able to see 
the stars and the sun, um, which obviously we cannot do. I will point out that clearly this is a moot point in modern day time because we have GPS. And eventually that'll still happen, I think. But we have to get to that point first, you know. So before GPS and all that, how did people navigate? So the most accurate way people could navigate on on like sea voyages and stuff were using uh, first astrolabes and then sextants. So an astrolabe was basically like this big kind of like cross-shaped tool that was like this big, unwieldy, really hard to use thing um, that you used to measure the angle between generally like the sun or like the North Star and the horizon. The astrolabe, which was first used in like the late 15th century, was apparently pretty much impossible to actually use on a boat. Literally all you could do was like find an island and then figure out kind of where you were. Also, you couldn't find longitude. You could only find latitude. So it wasn't even actually all that useful. The astrolabe was pretty bad. It's kind of getting at here. But the sextant, which was first used in the early 18th century, got a lot better. So the sextant was a similar idea, same basic principle. But it was much smaller. It was like handheld. It was kind of like telescoping. And you used it to either find, you could actually find either longitude or latitude. So you find latitude either with, an, with the North Star at night or um, at noon when the sun is directly above you. You basically just take the angle between either the North Star or the sun and the horizon and use that to calculate your latitude. Easy enough. You can also, if you take a measurement like 15 minutes to half an hour before noon and another one 15 minutes to half an hour after, you can um, do something else to find your longitude. And apparently someone who's actually like, you know, skilled in using a sextant can determine your position within like two nautical miles, which is around 2.3 regular miles, uh, which is kind of insane. Honestly, that is kind of crazy, right? Like just this is like, like a little like brass telescope on a protractor and you can figure out where you are within like two miles. The, The funny thing is it's such an impractical skill at the same time. Right. I know because it's like, it's like, you know, obviously well, if you're on a boat in the middle of the ocean, and you need, and you are, you know, well, not Columbus because he just got lost. But if you're like, I need to know where I am, and you, you know, that half hour is well spent. But imagine being like, you, you know, you got the sextant because you thought it was cool. You learned how to use it, and you're like, oh man, this is a really neat, you know, party trick I can do. And they'd be like, hey guys, I bet you I can tell you where we are. And then you're like, you know, you like pull out your contraption, you flip it around, you look at the sun, you look at the horizon, you like move all these little levers and dials. And you're like, okay. And they're like, well, where are we? No, I need, give me, I need to wait half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love that. I love that so much. Guys, I'm going to get it. You just got to have to be a little more patient. Wait for it. <laughs> um, wait for it. <laughs> one, one thing I did find out, by the way, it always bothered me. I never knew why there was a difference between nautical miles and miles. Apparently, it's just because nautical miles are equal to one minute of latitude. So there's that. That's it. That's the answer. It wasn't actually that exciting, but... Why don't they just call it something else to avoid confusion? Man, I don't know. Like, you'd think that with all like the random shit they call things with like distances at sea, you have like, like instead of just calling it like, isn't a knot just literally like a mile per hour? Sorry, no, it's actually a nautical mile per hour. So that one actually mm-hmm. is different. But um, there's yeah, like, because it's not. At- wow. <laughs> there's like fathoms. A fathom is just like, oh, I have it in here somewhere because I use it later. A fathom is just like two yards. It's six feet. That's a fathom. 
502 yards. I don't know. Whatever. Fathom sounds way larger than two feet. Right? Just the word. Uh, Six feet. Six feet. Not two feet. Oh. But yes. Still. And then there's like leagues. I don't know what leagues are. but Leagues are far. A league's probably like 40 fathoms or something. Hold on. No, leagues can't be that much because 20,000 leagues under the sea can't be that far. A league is 3.45 miles. I don't know why. It's, uh, it's it's because it's three nautical miles. There's the answer. It's three Everything nautical miles. Everything stems from nautical miles. Yeah. So there you go. Anyway, point being, nautical measurements are weird and I hate them. But anyway, bigger point being, suck sense and astrolabes clearly don't work now because you can't see the sun or the stars. So how do people navigate before before that? Because obviously we were sailing long before the 15th century. So there are a lot of things people used. Uh, one of the funniest ones that I think is the most, like, feels just so perfect for, like, early navigation is what they call dead reckoning, which is one of those terms I'd always heard but never actually knew what it was. And dead reckoning is pretty much just figuring out how far away something is based on how long it took you to get there. So you just kind of, like, particularly early on, guess at how fast you're going. And because you don't have a clock, guess at how long it took you and then turn that into a bigger guess for how far away it is. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> Stacking guesswork on top of each other is a tried and true tradition that we continue on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, Which is actually also great that even, you know, obviously you can use it like if you're sailing out to an island that's less than a day away, you can, you know, you have to figure out how far it is there. But they would also use it. They would have like a map, right? And on a multi-day voyage, they would just at the end of each day, pretty much what they would try to do is leave going like due east or something, right? and estimate how fast they're going at the end of the day just combine that information together and go on the map and say we're here now and assume that that's true and just keep doing that until they get somewhere which is actually how columbus wound up where he wound up <laughs> this also sounds a lot like how i do my podcast answers well <laughs> it's, instead it is... of instead of wildly traveling east i wildly grab an unsourced number for something off the internet <laughs> right other things obviously they had compasses Early on, they just had what they call a navigator's compass, which was just, you just, you know, the, the thing you do in, like, fifth grade science lab where you take an iron noodle. Uh, needle, iron, iron noodle. noodle. <laughs> Damn it. Another good superhero name. <laughs> I was really going to say not. Dead Reckoning. Um, dead Reckoning is the villain. Iron Noodle is the hero. <laughs> take an iron needle and, like, a magnetized, like, a lodestone or something, you know, rub it together and then put it on, like, a piece of straw and float in a bowl of water and all point kind of towards north. Because it was pointing to magnetic north, not actually true north. And fun fact, apparently for a long time, sailors obviously didn't understand that and just didn't trust compasses because, like, they didn't take them north. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. They still use them. They mostly use them to figure out, like, like the direction of the wind because that could tell them something about where they are sometimes, you know. But they wouldn't just, like, use a compass to, like, say we're traveling north because they just straight up didn't trust them, which is great. I've mistrusted navigation systems for far smaller reasons. Yeah, I don't trust GPS, so, like, I get it. I understand. I don't I don't even trust, like, variations on GPS where it's like, mm, nah, Apple Maps, you're not going to get me where I need right. to go. You're telling me that's going to take two minutes less? No, come on. I know better than you. And I get there half an hour later than I said. Would GPS work in Overcast? Like, always Overcast everywhere? Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it does. I mean, it works. It's not line of Currently, sight. if it's yeah. writing, my GPS works. Right. I guess. Okay. It just needs, you need, like, the, uh, it's what? It's, like, like not, I guess it's radio-based? 
Yeah, clouds, clouds, you know, block some stuff, but they are not like iron sheets mm-hmm. <laughs> of, of you know, insulation. So lots of stuff gets through clouds, basically because they're just misty water. Exactly, yeah. Like, solid obstacles will block the GPS signal, but not like a cloud. Anyway, other fun thing they would use were sounding bells or sounding weights or what's going to call it like like line and lead or something i saw like eight names for this it's basically just like a little like lead usually sort of bell-shaped chunk of metal on a long line and you'd put a wad of of tallow which is like like animal fat just like beef fat in the base of it and just drop it off the side of your boat you have markings on the line so you'd know what hits the bottom how far down the bottom is and then that fat would pick up, like, the stuff that was on the bottom. And you'd pull that up and see what it was. And they would actually keep charts back. They found these back to, like, 6th century BC in the Mediterranean. And they would actually keep charts that, that measure or kept track of, like, not just the depth of, of the water, but also what material was at the bottom at different places. And by doing that, you could figure out where you were, which is insane. Yeah, that extra touch of... Oh, I'm in this, the silty sands. Oh, we right. must be over to the west. <laughs> well, and that's what they were saying. Is they were saying that like you people would give like old school like map quest directions basically, but it was like go forward for you know leave going towards the sun, sail for five minutes until you hit like the salt, and then turn north. It was like absolutely bizarre. I, I saw a couple <laughs> examples, and it's absolutely bizarre. But they would actually navigate based on this which is insane guys we've hit the coarse gravel of gibraltar (laughs) (laughs) but we're nearly home obviously this only works in in shallow uh shallow water so it's not really all that useful for like sea voyages um and then last last really weird thing i saw uh birds so there was this guy this eighth century viking explorer named i'm gonna butcher this floki vilgerderson Something along those lines. One more time. Uh, Floki Vilgerderson. 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 It sounds like there are a lot of consonants in a row. Yeah, there's a lot of... And like the the raw name, there's also a lot of characters I don't know how to pronounce. But I found Mm. a more anglicized version that I'm rolling with. Um, But anyway, he's the guy who's credited with the discovery of Iceland. And when he was going on that voyage, he carried a cage of ravens with him. And when he thought they should be near land, he would just let out one of the birds. And if the bird just circled the boat and didn't go anywhere, they knew they weren't near land. But if the bird took off in some direction, they knew land had to be that way and just followed the bird. And <laughs> that's, that's amazing. It's so Pretty good. It, like, and like the fact that it's ravens, just like the most metal shit ever. It's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but yeah, so so obviously, for the most part, most of these aren't really going to work for like getting, you know, from the old world to the new world, right? So if we're going to have civilization develop at all the way that, you know, it did, we're going to have to figure out some other way to like navigate that because it's just not going to work otherwise. So this is where I started asking the question, what does overcast actually mean? Because this is going to be relevant in a second. Uh, it turns out that depending on where you look, overcast isn't necessarily just completely cloudy. I saw everything from 88% cloudy to 95% cloudy, up to fully cloudy, obviously, uh, depending on where you look. Which means, assuming we say it that's true, that people would be aware of the existence of stars and the sun. They just wouldn't be able to see them most of the time, right? You just see, like, patches occasionally, you'd see them through. 
Okay. So the reason this is relevant is that eventually, what I tried, started trying to figure out is when is someone going to try to get above the clouds and see what it looks like? Because if you can't see anything up there, it's going to take a lot longer <laughs> before someone's like, hey, I'm going to try to get up there and poke the ceiling, right? Yeah, they're just yeah. going to think it's a, a white ceiling. Yeah, so so the lowest clouds are around 2,000 meters up. So I started looking into when, like, ballooning was a thing. Because that's kind of the first way it's going to happen, right? In our actual history, uh, the first recorded manned balloon flight in, like, a hot air balloon was the Montgolfier brothers on the 21st November 1783. Um, and that one, they only went up, like, a couple hundred feet or something because I don't think they expected it to work. <laughs> They're just, they're like, they like fill it up and the like, people are watching and they're just like it starts to rise like oh no oh no oh no <laughs> but but like under a year later uh so the 23rd of june 1784 jean-francois de Rosier and joseph proust uh flew at about 3,000 meters above the clouds um for about 45 minutes uh in a hot air balloon so in under a year we got to the point where we actually could get above the clouds so once we figure out to do it we can get up there pretty quickly. And what I'm kind of thinking here is that once we do that and once we realize that we can get up there and actually navigate, you know, once we see the stars and stuff, the clear direction we're going to go is airships. Which, actually, I was shocked at how early airships, like, came about. Because, like I said there, like, you know, that was that was middle of 1784. Also in 1784, some dude put a, like, hand-powered propeller on a balloon. And then the next year, he crossed the English Channel and a balloon with like flapping wings and like a like bird tail to steer it. So like we were figuring out the airship thing pretty much as soon as we figured out the hot air balloon thing. And it seems like it, it did take a little bit longer to actually get airships going because the first like fully controllable flight in an airship wasn't until like a hundred years later. But I think that if we had literally no other way to cross a long distance, we'd get there a lot faster. So I think the overall takeaway here is that if we couldn't see the stars to navigate, eventually we'd have airships, which is cool. That is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. What like air if, pirates. What if you still have ships, but the crow's nest on the top of the ship is also a hot air balloon basket? So I actually thought about that. Like, no joke. I actually thought about that. But I don't think it's going to be like, okay, so what you could do. Because, because like I, I actually went down this path. What you could do is, is you would have a hot air balloon on your ship, and every night you would send the balloon up, and take like a sextant reading. Actually, no, it, it actually it doesn't even work. Why not? I just realized my my solution doesn't work. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> in Why real time, in real time, you're seeing. So here's the problem, guys. A sextant requires goes by the horizon that you can see the horizon. <laughs> Well, you can make a sextant calibrate to the cloud horizon. That might not vary that much. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> hmm. Ooh. Well, then. What you have is a sextant. You have two sextants. You have one guy on the boat and one guy in the balloon. You fly, <laughs> and they yell really loudly. <laughs> and they have a, t- a tin can with a string. <laughs> Oh, no. This also actually kills the airship idea. I mean, you can still do an airship just because it's going to be a hell of a lot safer to use an airship than, like, a regular ship. But, ah, 
yeah, you can't release a sextant in an airship, huh? Mm. That's unfortunate. <laughs> this is the sound of my answer actually falling to pieces as I as I go down like the Hindenburg. Well, assuming that they did work, what was was there anything else besides airships? No, just me being really sad about the fact that my answer doesn't actually work. Airships are cool. That's kind of it. We got ten minutes of content out of that. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there is. To be fair, there is one. There is actually one other cool thing I saw about airships, which was unrelated to like the actual thing, but I just wanted to share it. I did see a a a study from 2019, which was last year, I guess. I don't really say 2019. Titled, Do sextants work on airships? It doesn't. <laughs> but basically, it was it was a a plan to transport hydrogen. Basically, it's making airships that were just like hydrogen airships that you would float up and then just basically let drift in the jet stream and then bring them down and unload like all but however much hydrogen you need to get back which would be like way way more efficient than any way we currently move hydrogen which is kind of cool well until you know something goes wrong i mean i've never heard of a hydrogen balloon airship i mean this would what what could possibly happen anyway marcus what'd you do (laughs) (laughs) i was looking at as i like to do more planet side stuff so what came to my mind first when I was looking at it, it's always cloudy, is actually global warming or cooling. Because cloudy days are cooler, right? So it makes sense that the Earth would cool down. Only, it's not quite that simple. Uh, so uh, the presence of clouds can actually either warm or cool the planet based on where the clouds are. So lower clouds, like less than a mile up, these clouds tend to be thicker and reflect light from the sun thus cooling things down higher clouds like the wisp more like the more wispy ones up top they let the light more through and they actually end up trapping heat on the earth they're better at trapping heat than they are at blocking light so they actually are netting a warming effect so my first question was are overcast clouds what type of clouds are they um and so the big blanket horizontal cloud that forms when you have these dreary overcast days or just every day if you happen to live like in england are stratus clouds and the stratus clouds are of the lower variety so they, they form pretty low to the ground so as far as clouds go they're pretty thick and they reflect more like they absorb so your cloudy days are cooler so everyone your first assumption was right but you know you could have been wrong <laughs> <laughs> So then the question becomes, okay, so you're, you're, the Earth is cooler, but the question is how much cooler? So first thing is, on average, about two-thirds of the Earth is covered by clouds at any given time, which is actually more than I expected. So 60%, 67% of the Earth has cloud cover on average. And by ratios, that, this is actually primarily the lower light-reflecting kind. They're not all stratus clouds, of course. A lot of them are the big, fluffy... Cumulo-clouds, cumulo-stratus, cumulo-nimbus, all the different fancy words. I don't know about you guys, every time I look at clouds, I'm like, okay, I get it. These ones are the stratus clouds. These ones are the cumulo-nimbus clouds. And there's like 12 more types of clouds that are all (laughs) combo names, and I stop caring, and I can never comprehend them all. If it's 60%, why, how come when you look at a picture of Earth, it doesn't look like it? It does, though. It's actually, the way they got it was by looking at pictures of Earth. It really doesn't look like 60%. Well, it is. Okay. <laughs> like NASA told me. Okie doke. I'll trust you. The thing is, the majority of the cloud covers over the oceans. The oceans are like 20% more covered on average than the land is. So that might 
bias it because you know we don't really look at the ocean that much because there's either a big blue blob or a bluish white blob with clouds over it regardless i have the number from the internet from an actual source but anyway we're going we're not gonna worry about that because we're going from 67 to a hundred percent cloud cover and that might not seem actually like that big a deal but the earth is kind of you know fickle about its environment so if you look at earth's quote-unquote energy budget this is basically the measure of how much solar energy that hits the planet and then how much energy the Earth emits back into space. So right now, this you know this energy budget is kind of balanced. Uh, and the issue we're having with global warming, for example, is that the greenhouse gases cause back radiation. So when the Earth tries to get rid of what it absorbs, the greenhouse gases are good at bouncing that heat back onto the planet and not letting it escape. The role that clouds play... They do a little bit of reflecting back, but the main role that clouds play is to reflect the energy before it even makes it to the planet. So our cloud cover right now actually reflects about 20% of the sun's total energy back into space. So if we up our cloud cover to 100%, we're reflecting about 30% of the sun's energy instead of 20%. So let's put it in perspective. If we look at the greenhouse gases, from 1980 to today the global warming effect has increased the amount of energy Earth absorbs by about 1.5 watts per meter squared on average. So the, you know, the amount of watts we get in versus the amount of watts we let out has changed by 1.5 um, in global warming's favor. If we increase the cloud cover, we would reduce the energy input by 34 watts per meter squared. So that's about, you know... 20 plus times worse than the global warming we've caused to date. Severely cooling the planet. So I found a handy online calculator for expected planet surface temperature based on its... Um, the, the word they use is albedo to measure how much energy comes in versus comes out. Um, and given the increased cloud cover, the average temperature of the Earth would drop from our current 59 degrees to 37 degrees! Which is not great that is yeah. significant <laughs> it's not very good for our planet well the planet doesn't matter it doesn't care it's it's not sentient we care <laughs> we do care uh it would be very cold like you know they talk about you know one degree of difference two degrees of difference you know rising ocean levels and all that if our average temperature is 37 degrees we're probably going to be an ice planet for the most part that happens a lot in your answers <laughs> <laughs> what that the earth becomes an ice planet yeah well, I mean, two in my defense, one of them was literally, what if the Earth was an ice planet? One was... Oh, no, that, no, I got to an ice planet for some other hypothetical. I, I take it back. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, what if the Earth was made of water? And you made it ice. It would become an ice planet. Oh, yeah. I made it, I did make it an ice planet from there. To be fair, I guess, it, you know, water planet is kind of like an ice planet. <laughs> I'm not too far off there. But anyway, that's, that's, the, that's the Earth. The, like, we freeze, we die. The other thing I, I ended up looking at was do plants work because of all the things that need the sunlight how are the plants gonna fare and i'll preface this by saying ignore what i just said about being super cold because most plants don't like that but from a purely sunlight perspective what happens to them so it makes sense that plants would die right plants need sunlight boom all the plants are dead only it's not quite that simple Plants do need a certain level of sunlight to activate photosynthesis, uh, but our clouds don't block all the solar radiation. They block, you know, the 20% and the rest comes onto the planet. So the question is, 
does enough sunlight get through on a cloudy day to let our plants do the photosynthesis that they need to do? Uh, and I actually found a study answering this question released by the ecological by the released by the Ecological Study of America, a study by the Ecological Study, uh, done by Donald Young and William Smith, where they studied how effective plants were on cloudy days for sunny days. And so the under, and, the, and just the kind of bottom line from theirs is the understory herb Arnica latifolia had a 37% greater carbon gain, aka, you know, that's they're doing photosynthesis, 37% greater carbon gain on cloudy days than on clear days with an 84% reduction in transpiration, which is how much water they lose, which resulted in more than a seven-fold increase in water use efficiency when compared to clear days. So on cloudy days, not only do plants do 37% more photosynthesis, they do it seven times more efficiently with the water that they have. That's pretty wild. This is not what I was expecting to see. So if you thought all the plants were going to die because of cloud cover... This time you're wrong. You're right before with, with, with the clouds being cold, but now you're <laughs> wrong. The plants are alive and they are thriving. You've been telling us we're wrong and then we're right and then we're right and then we're wrong. Yeah, it's a wild ride. <laughs> but yeah, that's what I got. Plants can do good, except for the fact that it's 37 degrees now. <laughs> Which makes plants do bad. Makes plants do bad. It was Shadow Clock's plan all along. That doesn't line up with his name. <laughs> well, I mean, he made things more shadowy. <laughs> He made things more shadowy and therefore cooled the planet. Including all of the clocks. It was Lead Noodle's plan. <laughs> lead Noodle. I think it was Iron Noodle, not Lead Noodle. It was Iron Noodle. <laughs> it was Iron Noodle. <laughs> ben, are you... No, I'm going to give it to Chris this time. I give it to Ben a lot. Chris, I'm going to give it to you. Yay. Well, don't say it yet. Chris, would you rather crush a snail shell with your teeth? Or scale a fish with your fingernails. Uh. <laughs> um, is there a snail in the snail shell? Ooh, I'm gonna say yes. I was gonna say no. Hmm. I think if there's no snail in it, I don't think it's particularly close. And also, there's gonna be a fish in the fish, so there's gotta <laughs> be a snail in the snail. Um, you don't have to eat the snail. No. You just have to crush the shell. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, it's going to be, like, gritty and stuff once it gets crushed. You're probably going to eat some of it. <laughs> you, you, let's level with you. You're going to eat some snail. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to lick some slime. You're going to eat some snail. Is the snail alive? Ooh. Uh, your choice. My choice. I don't know if one of them is better than the other. I think a dead snail is better. I think it's better. Like, freshly dead? I don't... Oh, man. God, this is all so bad. <laughs> There's probably a small window between where you get the benefits of it being dead and not moving, but also the benefit, like, before, like, you know, where it's, it's dry. You don't, you, want, you want it dead so it doesn't move and so that it's, like, dry. But also you don't want a very dead one because then it's just getting, like, decomposing. Right. Um, yeah, I... I mean, if there was no snail in it, I think I would I would choose the shell. But since there is a snail on it in it, I don't. I, I mean, I think it would be pretty difficult to act. Like how how efficiently do you have to scale this fish? I mean, I imagine you would scale it so that you could eat the fish. That's the whole point of scaling it. Okay, so you actually have to do a good job at it. Yeah, you have to, you have to do <laughs> it would a be passable job. It would at be it. difficult to do. 
crushing a, a snail shell isn't difficult to do. It's just gross to do. Yeah, so basically, I think you're trading, like, what's got to be an hour of very, un- like, uncomfortable work with your fingernails. It's, like, a very consistent level of this sucks and it's frustrating versus, like, I mean, I imagine you just pop it in, you just go, and you, and you spit it out, you spit it all out. Yeah. And then it's just, like... The snail would be a lot faster. And you just chug Listerine for several minutes. I guess, do you, are you confident you can bring yourself to do the snail? Also, how hard is it to bite through a snail shell? I don't actually know. I don't uh, either. How strong is a snail shell? It can't be that hard. It's just on, a, on an order of scale, like, it can't be that hard to crush a snail shell. Probably not. Can you bite through your finger like a carrot? What? No, <laughs> Google. <laughs> can you bite through a snake is the next auto after I ty- have to type snail? Any definitive answers? Um, uh, it's telling me about how some snails are predatory. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of stuff about snails and shells, but nothing that's really... Snails do not have jaws and therefore cannot bite. They do, however, have a tongue-like organ called a radula that is covered in tiny, quote-unquote, teeth. Do, uh, I mean, does anything eat snails in nature? And if they do, do they eat the shell? Birds do, but I think they drop them to break the shell. Mm. birds eat snails i'll say this like i've definitely stepped on snail shells before and crashed them and it has not been. yeah that's true i guess but i also wonder if it's different when it's because like the snail is the shell is something that's secreted by the snail so i'm wondering if there's something where it like if the snail has died or left the shell because it died <laughs> Well, let's say it this way. I think you can bite through an acorn if you need to. I don't think a snail shell is harder than an acorn. That's weirdly helpful. <laughs> I imagine it'd be about the same as an acorn, probably. Nah, they're not that thick. They're full of snail. I guess. So song thrushes break snail shells on stones to eat the snails. Like, I'm, I'm imagining, like, a seashell that you find on the beach. It's kind of similar to that, probably. Much thinner, though. It's thinner? I don't think I'd be able to bite through a seashell, but if it's thinner, maybe. Uh, I've learned that apparently tiny snails can actually sometimes survive being eaten by birds. Like they don't get digested? What does that mean? <laughs> apparently, so a study found that about 15% of the snails eaten by two species of birds survive their journey through the bird's guts and out the other end. Oh, uh, that's awesome. 15%? That's pretty high. It's pretty high. <laughs> I mean, these are very small snails. Uh, they're all adults with these are these are all snails that are uh, their shells are about like a tenth of an inch high. They go through in about half an hour. Well, that's just all stuff in birds. Birds have, that's why bird poop is so gross and acidic and like nasty is because they need to poop so that they can fly. Right. <laughs> they can't. They literally cannot be weighed down by their own you know digestion. Um, but anyway. Anyway, we've gone a little far afield here, haven't we? Yeah, assuming you can do this. So I think the snail shell is a worse experience, but it's way shorter. Scaling a fish is, I don't know how long it would take. It would probably take, I don't know, I'm assuming it would take around like an hour. Yeah, I'll say the same. You might be able to do it faster depending on your nails. It's not as gross, but it's still gross. It's just not as I get gross. that. I get that nails on a chalkboard cringe. See, to me, this feels like a no-doubter scale of fish. Really? I was leaning the other way. 
Really? I mean, it's a hard decision, but I'm starting to lean the other way a little bit. I think part of it is that if I knew for a fact that I could pop a snail in my mouth and crack it in one go, I might be more inclined <laughs> to do it. You're not confident. fear of the unknown. The fact that I might toss the thing in my mouth and bite down and nothing. And be like, oh god, there's a snail in my mouth. Oh, and that's just in and there. In there, oh, right? Oh, no. Oh, oh man, but I think you convinced me. Like, I think that's it. That's all we need. It's, it's the fish. I'm going to go snail. You're going to go snail? I can't yeah. go snail. I'm confident in my in my jaw strength. <laughs> I can plus you know what scaling a fish with your bare hands survival skill. Right, Bam. like I just I don't I don't think it's that bad. Like it's gonna be it's not it's gonna, gonna be cut great. Up, it's gonna cut up the underside of your fingernails. Look, it's just, it's fine. I can deal. I'll deal. And it's gonna be like a smelly fish for an hour. You're gonna smell for like the whole day. I don't mind a smell of fish though. It's fine. I don't want to buy a snail. You're gonna taste like snail for the rest of your life. Well. If you want to be there when Ben eats a snail, no. it's going to only happen, no. possibly, on our behind-the-scenes episode. Nope. So, if you want access to when we make Ben put bad things in his mouth, you go to www.patreon.com slash absurdhypotheticals, and you click on that Become a Patron button. It's just a dollar. One dollar. It's like not even real money anymore nowadays, thanks to all the inflation and all that. It's just, it doesn't even count. It's like, what's, what's a dollar? It's just a piece of paper. Who needs it? We need it. You don't. We do. We're not going to get the physical piece of paper, though, unless they, like, mail it to us. You could do that, too. Yeah, they can do that. Wait, no, they can't. I think that's a crime. To mail money? I don't think you're allowed to mail money. I don't actually know. I know it's a bad idea. I don't think it's illegal, though. While, while it is not illegal to mail money, it is still not a good idea to mail hey. amounts of cash this way. Yeah, don't don't mail us money. <laughs> well, it says it says it's a bad idea to mail large amounts of cash this way, which one dollar is not. It is a small amount of cash. And also, don't be clever and say I sent you a dollar and put like sixty eight cents in the envelope and like a thirty two dollar you know thirty two cent stamp, because that's just no. But that's not helping anybody. Hold on, I got fireworks outside. Let me close my window. <laughs> I can hear them too. That's funny. Sorry, they're literally in my front yard. Oh yeah, you guys live sort of close to each other, right? Yeah, we're within like a couple miles, three miles, three miles. Probably yeah, three yeah, miles. With, with within yeah, probably two actually. It's probably two miles. I think it's actually either more, way. Anyway, it's close. That's the important point. Either way, we're very close. These are literally in my front yard. They're small fireworks, literally in my front yard. Mm. Anyway, I am starting a fund to get rid of these fireworks in my front yard. So, I'm going to need that dollar. <laughs> yeah, access to the BTS, which stands for Ben Taste Snails. No. Yeah, Ben Taste Snails. And uh, we're going to try and convince him to do that then. And maybe he does. Nope. <laughs> and the only way you'll know is by becoming a No, patron. you can know now. I'm not going to do it. It's going to. If you want to enjoy more now. of our content that's not about Ben eating a snail, you can just go ahead and join us next week when we answer the following question What if Ben ate a snail? No. <laughs> 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 what if you could perfectly train elephants? <laughs> <laughs>